0: What is the nutrition roadmap to recover from relative energy deficiency in sport? Many runners, cyclists, and triathletes, be it male or female, can find themselves struggling to perform or to recover from their training. Or they may experience other health complications, things like loss of a menstrual cycle for females or lower testosterone and libido in males, loss of bone density with the potential risk of stress fractures, the effects on mental health, and constantly getting sick all the time. In this episode, our guest is Tina Muir, former elite distance runner who represented Great Britain. Now, Tina suffered from amenorrhea for nine years, although she didn't realise it at the time, she was actually suffering from relative energy deficiency in sport or REDS. So we chatted to Tina about her realisation that energy availability was behind her lack of a menstrual cycle, some of the common symptoms of REDS that she experienced but aren't always mentioned in the official guidelines. Her decision to quit the sport at the peak of her career her journey to recover from reds and her ongoing work to support athletes and especially women to understand and recover from this condition. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin and I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists, and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimize their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. The sort of stuff that people are debating out on their run or ride in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping on Google to try and find answers for. So we'll break that down Invite a guest expert in our A episode or a guest athlete or coach in our B episode to add their unique perspective. Today, it's episode 57B, what is the nutrition roadmap for recovery from REDS, with our special guest, distance runner Tina Muir. But before we get to Tina, Steph, how are you going this week?
1: I'm going good, Al. I've got family down for the lovely moment where I get to wear the beautiful gown and good-looking hat.
0: A big um, floppy hat. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations.
1: So that's on tomorrow.
0: This is a PhD graduation for the listeners who are wondering what a floppy hat is all about. <laughs>
1: yeah. Why well, I'm gonna look so so sexy in that. Mm. Uh yeah, so that looking forward to, to that. Yeah, yeah. And we're um week twelve now in terms of the semester for university. So um That's always exciting times with marking, you know, and exams coming up for the students. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, yeah. What about you? What have you been up to? Uh,
0: Pretty much, yeah, well, no graduation, but um, week 12, (laughs) yeah, so end of semester, which is nice for me because I've got other people doing most of my marking for me. Nice. Um, So my my work's been mainly on the teaching side, which finishes as of today at the time of this recording. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, looking forward to uh, having a bit of a – Easier few weeks before yeah. the exams roll in and have to finalize grades for students and all that kind of happy stuff. Yep. So, yeah, all good.
1: Yeah, yeah, nice one. Updates and announcements. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We really appreciate it. And there might be another couple of ebooks to give away there as well. And on the topic of ebooks, we've chosen our winners from the survey and we'll notify you about this very shortly. So stay with us on that. And just a reminder, if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And we'd love to try and help answer that for you. And today's episode, our
0: Yeah, today's episode 57B, what is the nutrition roadmap for recovery from reds with our guest Tina Muir. Now, Tina, as I mentioned at the start, is a former elite runner herself, particularly in the half marathon and marathon, who represented Great Britain in the 2016 half marathon world championships. But less than a year after that, she quit competitive running in large part because she had no menstrual cycle for nine years and couldn't, at that stage, get to the bottom of exactly why that was the case. So her blog post about her decision to walk away from the sport actually went viral at that time. Um, She talks about that in this interview, and that was followed up with a piece that she wrote for Runner's World and several other publications as well. Shortly after this, she actually started her own podcast, the Running For Real podcast, which continues to this day. So it's been running for say about six and a half years now, which is pretty amazing. Um, I don't know whether we'll still be going in six and a half years, Steph. Let's <laughs> hope so. Um, but more recently, Tina has created a series of short YouTube videos actually about reds and recovery from reds with a whole bunch of guest experts answering some of the most common questions that she's received from other athletes all over the world that have contacted her, having seen her story about reds and recovery from it. So I think it was really timely as we wanted to sort of capture this topic that we had Tina on, um, and we'll talk about those resources that are available to people to look at as well, and obviously discuss Tina's own journey for recovery from REDS.
1: Excellent. Let's get stuck into
0: it. Yeah, let's do it. Tina Muir,
1: welcome to the Long March. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for getting up nice and early for us.
2: As long as you don't mind the birds singing, because I, I still have the window open, because it's one, one of those like perfect times where it's like warm in the day, cool at night, and the, the cool air comes in. So I'm enjoying that. But if the birds are being too noisy, that's going to be the only problem we'll have to deal with. But otherwise, I'm happy to be here in the morning.
1: <laughs> yeah. no, I love the birds tweeting, and hopefully, it won't encourage my little adult uh, parking. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, So, some of our listeners may be aware of your story, especially our listeners that are runners, as I know it went kind of viral back in Mm. 2017, and that's where you had about a nine-year battle with um, what we call REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency. Before we get into this, though, can you tell us about your running career leading up to this point?
2: Yeah, so it was actually really a total of 11 years. I just had kind of one forced period in the middle there. So it was, it was a a large chunk of my life where I was struggling with just, I was fighting my body in every way. But I, I wasn't one of those kids who was always running around, loved running. Everyone said, Oh, she's destined to be a runner. I really didn't enjoy it that much until somehow I ended up on the cross-country team and and then just kind of discovered I was quite good at it and then I ended up becoming good enough to come over here to the US where I live now to run here on for a university on, on a scholarship and I remember coming in and being so overwhelmed with how intense it, it is over here to go to university in the US like it felt like I was becoming a professional athlete very you know you've got morning practices as they call them you've got You got to go to your ice bath after you got to eat this. You got to, you know, there's so many things. And I remember thinking, thriving in that moment and thinking, I really want to like see what I can do here. And so I really got into this mindset of, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be the best I can be. And so it, it took me about a year to kind of get my feet under me. I'd kind of spent a year before that kind of going through the motions. But by the end of that year, I was feeling good. My running was coming along. And I overheard a coach telling an athlete to lose weight. And that was the first time I remember thinking like, huh, I didn't know like that would help my running. And so I asked him if I should do the same. And he said, yeah, you could lose 10 pounds. And so that's really a moment where I thought, okay, well, like, obviously, that was the first time that lesson of like, skinnier equals faster, like entered my brain. And so I, I started to try to eat better and I've always had a sweet tooth. I started to try and cut things like that out. And, and yeah, over the summer, I did lose a lot of weight. I ran more than I ever had. And of course, as happens, my performances also shot up, but my period disappeared and I was able to continue running. I actually was very fortunate that I didn't have a lot of injuries during my collegiate career. I ran, I continued to get better each year. I, my times kept going down. I didn't really have injuries other than the odd muscle strain occasionally or like bout of shin problems, which I'd always dealt with and was more a form, you know, overstriding than anything else. And then I went on to become a professional athlete and it continued. But by then I kind of got used to, that's just the way it was. I went on to run for Great Britain in some world championships and European championships. And kept doing that, kept improving until I reached a point, as you mentioned, in 2017, where mentally, physically, emotionally, I just was done. And I just one day, my home track in St. Albans in England, I was visiting my sister who just had a baby. I just snapped and was like, I'm done. And I quit running. (laughs) And so I don't know if that was actually your question, but that's kind of the first part of my journey in a nutshell. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that too, Tina. Because we had we had a podcast episode almost two years ago now, and mm. it was literally called "Does Lena Equal Faster." And and a guest on that was Izzy Bat Doyle, who's an Australian runner mm. who who went to the Olympics in, in Tokyo, so just recently, and and is still still active in the sport. But she went through the US collegiate system, and and what you described is very similar to to mm. what she described and what she saw mm. in that system as well when when she was there. Do you yeah. know if it's changed over time do you think it's better now than than what it was maybe five ten years ago
2: it really depends on the university there's there's still so much of that culture going on there's I mean I, I I've we've had a lot of books over the last few years that have come out particularly Lauren Fleshman's book came out and cracked that wide open about you know there's so much competitive kind of you'd be looking at other people's plates and kind of saying oh you eating that and it's just a very like toxic culture of trying to everyone trying to to look a certain way and force their bodies into a certain shape but I will say I do think as with most things with the generation coming through they are advocating for themselves they are saying hey this is not okay they are speaking up and so I do think it's forced coaches to reevaluate the way that they talk to especially female athletes so I do think over I wouldn't even say five years I'd say over the last two years we've really seen a shift there was more of a conversation beginning to happen and I you would see it at the national level of girls winning things or women winning things who weren't like apt you could tell had like such a were like on such a razor edge of being able to run well and and being injured the the it's not so much those women winning things anymore so that has shifted slowly over time but I'd say the biggest change has been just athletes speaking up or maybe not choosing a university because they sense that culture when they go visit so just the conversations happening have really changed and I think that is finally starting to seep through although obviously we've still got these old school coaches who believe their way is the best way and you know some rural kids may not know to ask these questions who still end mm-hmm. up going there. Yeah.
1: And so our topic, yeah, I guess today is discussing a nutrition roadmap for recovery from where it's. But before we get into that, I think it's useful to understand how, how did you actually approach your eating and nutrition for your sport and performance prior to, mm-hmm. I guess, even going to the university?
2: you mean before everything kind of became very focused I I I would say I had a a very healthy relationship with food my mum had always actually struggled with she was very careful with what she ate and so was one of my aunts so I I definitely had that around me so maybe like had some seeds in there but my dad was like the opposite he was very much like you know what we're going out to eat I'm gonna get that nice juicy burger I'm gonna have chips and I'm gonna I'm gonna have a brownie and I'm gonna he he, like just had no shame he ate what he wanted when he wanted and so my sister and I both had that mindset for most things so I would say I was very very had a good relationship with food I I wouldn't I wouldn't say that anything was off limits the only thing I think I would say was that I I was aware that other athletes were doing things that were harmful to their bodies I remember sitting next to a girl on the way to the national championships once and she she won was top three or something and I remember seeing her like pick at her food and thinking like why would you not eat before running like to me it was like the most obvious thing in the world like what world but you need food like almost like you need to fill up your car like why would you what are you doing but then she ran well and so I remember thinking like huh well I guess that's what works for her and just shrugging it off but yeah I wouldn't say I'd say I I had a very good relationship with food overall and it was yeah literally that comment that kind of just started me on a on a you know curious path in the wrong direction when I got to university yeah
1: yeah and
2: how did that relationship change after that mm. comment then yeah that was when I really start just looking at things I remember yeah the The sweets was the biggest thing, I think. I remember thinking like, yeah, I eat a lot of sugar. So I'm going to cut that out. And I did. But I remember like being in the evenings and just eating a bagel with peanut butter because I was so hungry and saying and then being like, Tina, like, what are you doing? You just like it would have been better if you just had the sweets because look at what you've just eaten there. That's way more food. But at the time, I like I was so hungry that I couldn't stop it. And so I remember feeling a bit of shame with that, of thinking like, why can't I like control myself better in that way? But obviously that was my body saying I need calories. And, but I would say over time I got better at restricting and that was, it was, it was just kind of those, those lies you tell yourself, you know, I'd say, okay, well I'm going out to eat tonight. So I know I'm going to eat a lot there. So I'm going to, I'm going to, maybe I'll have, I'll have a, like a salad for lunch and then I'll. I'm hungry again, but three or four hours before I go out to eat. So maybe I'll have an apple now and then I'll have a carrot, carrots in a bit. And I would, it was very like strategic. And so over time, I'd say I just got like, quote unquote, better at it in a bad way. And it just led to where I was just thinking about food all the time. Um, Always thinking about my next meal as I was eating the last one. So yeah, it just continued to like gather steam with those negative thoughts about food. Did that answer your question or was that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: And, and how long did it take from there for your menstrual cycle to then,
2: I guess, disappear? It was pretty quick. It was after that first summer, yeah. So it was probably within three, four, six months that it disappeared. And at first it was – I think I finished out the rest of the season to make get it to the summer – And then I went, that's when I went and got help for it. But yeah, it was very much like, well, we'll just make sure everything can happen. And then once they managed to, the gynecologist managed to force a period out of me, which I still remember was one of the most painful experiences of my life, getting that forced one. It was kind of like, all right, well, everything's fine internally. So when you're ready to stop running, just that's when you can figure this out. So it was very much like box checked, come back when you're ready to quit running
1: you mentioned that day when you decided you were done. Was it the Mm. running, the reds or something else that you did in the end?
2: I think it it was definitely a combination. As I said, my sister just had a baby. So that really forced me to confront what I was not potentially going to do. Because at the time there wasn't much information about fertility. So I knew in my in you know, a caveman brain, that no period means no child. <laughs> and so I could see that I could see this baby and was thinking, okay, if I go on as I am, I'm never going to have a child. I knew my mum had struggled with her. It took her five years to have me because of her relationship to food. And so I knew that that could be a long journey. So I was seeing this. I also was running wise. I'd achieved my lifetime goal of running for Great Britain. So I was feeling a bit lost. And I think honestly, a huge part of it was the Reds in terms of, it was more the insomnia than anything. That was what crushed me in the end. Like I hated being cold all the time. I hated the thoughts that I had, but the insomnia, the like struggling to fall asleep no matter what I'd run and then feeling as if someone flicked a switch in my brain at 4am and I just could not sleep anymore. That was what was really killing me, especially while I was visiting my sister so I was like not sleeping at night at all because she, I was helping her with the baby it just met, added to this combination moment where it all built up together I was still trying to train where yeah I just kind of reached a point where I couldn't take it anymore
1: and what age were you when you made that decision to to stop
2: I think it was 28 or 29 yeah.
0: mm-hmm. Just picking up on something you said there, Tina, about sort of the, the cold hands and also sort of the insomnia. I guess if we think about the model of relative energy deficiency in sport, there's all different sort of parts mm-hmm. to it. But both of those aren't traditionally part of the model, although you do hear you know athletes describe that. Do you feel like that's a common part in terms of your other athletes that you've spoken to that have been through something similar?
2: Yeah, I'd say definitely the cold. I I was convinced I had Raynaud's. Like I was like, my grandma had Raynaud's, my aunt has Raynaud's. I was like, I just have Raynaud's. So it's very easy to write it off. But yes, I would say the cold thing is definitely something that I have almost. I don't. I don't know hardly anyone who hasn't had that. And obviously, that makes sense with the energy. You know, mm. why why would it send it to your fingers and toes? But I would say the insomnia is a bit of a bit trickier. It's it's more that personality type that is drawn to making decisions making changes being that perfectionist type and Mm. for me that manifested in insomnia because it meant I felt like I always had all these things to do that were so important when really they weren't and so I do see while it doesn't always come out in insomnia it's definitely kind of a Like when people are in their recovery journey and they reach out to me, it's always like, okay, well, I've gained this many pounds. I've started at this. I did this. I eat this many calories. It's all like numbers and precise things. And when they finally say to me, oh, I've got my period back or like things are happening, it's when they let go of the numbers and the precise and the the organized. So I think it's something about us being very driven to – perfectionism I suppose mm. but that's obviously hard to classify because that can come out in so many different ways
0: yeah yeah and if you look at the the reds model there is a section in there around sort of mental illness mm-hmm. more broadly uh, it's it's not that specific but it is the only part of the model that has a two-directional arrow in it as well so it's sort of saying well you know poor mental health can be a reason that someone could end up with low energy availability mm. but it could work the other way as well and actually yeah. low energy availability affects mood and, and mental health
2: mm-hmm yeah, yeah,
1: and so I guess nowadays there's like a lot of awareness about the concept of energy availability and threads. But what was it like prior? Like, what was it like at the time of your actual diagnoses? Did, mm-hmm. did you were you aware of this concept of energy availability when you were running at the time?
2: No, not really, because the female athlete triad was the conversation conversation happening and but correct me here if I'm wrong the female athlete tried was like bone injuries was one piece it was the period it was period and what was the third one
1: uh,
0: disordered I'm- eating
2: yeah disordered eating okay so yeah so for me the disordered eating I was like well but I eat a lot so that's not me and I had spoken to no- nutritionists not necessarily dietitians but nutritionists in the past And they had all kind of done the food log. And yes, I had manipulated it slightly to give it a day where I did do well. So I knew that but wasn't ready to accept that. But I still didn't believe that was me. So I didn't think I had that one. I didn't have the injuries. And so I was just left lost because I was like, well, that's not me because I don't have two of the three. So I just felt very confused and broken and just isolated because I didn't have in my head the disordered eating that was just how everyone ate and I didn't have the the bone injuries or many injuries at all so I didn't know what it was and again every time I went to a doctor or some medical professional they would basically say well you got to stop running and I'd be like well I can't do that so and they'd be like okay well can't help you then so Mm. so it just was like end of conversation so I didn't really have any, there wasn't much out there at all at that time beyond the female athlete triad. And so I just kind of struggled through it. And every time I'd come across a professional, like someone who did some version of holistic medicine, I'd get all excited and think, oh, could this figure it out for me? Could this find out what's wrong with me? And every time it just would go nowhere. So, so yeah, it was a very lonely time, but there wasn't much out there
0: for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, the, the term breads didn't exist prior to 2014. Yeah. And uh, we were talking to Bobby Clay about it a couple of episodes ago. And, you know, the, yeah, you're right. There wasn't much out there at that time. I remember writing something for cycling tips. I reckon it was probably 2015, maybe, or 2016. Yeah. And there was almost nothing at that yeah. time. Yes, yeah. yeah, so it doesn't surprise me. So how did you actually become aware of the sort of the model and, and all the pieces kind of fitted together and you go, oh, that's that's what it is?
2: Yeah, it wasn't until after I, so when, when I stopped running and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to make this a story. I wrote a blog post on my website saying that I was quitting running and it, it got like, I can't remember how many views, but it it crashed my website. I think it was like 70,000 people read it in a few weeks. It it went crazy. And I thought, wow, okay. Part of this is the fact that an elite runner just quit running, you know, a few months after running for a country, like peak of her career. But also there's something here. And so I reached out to Runners World and they were very excited about doing something. And then it just went out of control from there. And during this time, I'd come across a book called No Period Now What, primarily by Nicola Rinaldi. And I had read so other people were going through this. And that's where I really learned like, oh, okay, my relationship to food is not great here. And the way to get my period back is to stop and do nothing. And so I just kind of did it on my own with some guidance from that book. And so I just stopped. I did what the book said, which was to stop running and try and gain weight. But it wasn't until actually a few years later, the following year, I worked with Nancy Clark, a dietitian. And she had said to me, okay, we need to like improve your food here. So she had taught me like how to eat better. So I wasn't basically stocking up for the night so I could binge on sugar. But then it wasn't till I think maybe a year or two later, where I spoke to Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, who's a, a eating disorder specialist, incredible resource. That she finally said to me, like, Tina, you know, you you had an eating disorder, right? And I was like, No, no, I didn't. And she was like, Yeah, you did. You had like red s. And I was like, Oh, and that's when it all clicked together. So it wasn't actually till years later when I she explained it to me that I really began to understand yeah about what was going on with me and and then I'd started diving into the research and had a few friends who had done research like Trent Stellingworth and so then I just went down the rabbit hole and so yeah. Hmm. Yeah and
1: so how long do you think that you were in that state of low energy availability like was it all year round where kind of in a way intentionally you know not giving your body enough or did you kind of just try and focus that on where you thought you needed to be in peak condition?
2: I wasn't really aware of some of the changes like like with cervical fluid and stuff to know whether it was actually changing throughout the year but I did I I definitely restricted during my time off aware of not running but I will say that during those times I also did allow myself to kind of I'd give myself a period of kind of eating whatever I wanted afterwards. And so I do wonder if my body had maybe like started to build up to try and then I'd start it again and restrict it again and then it gone again. However, I did have my honeymoon in 2015 in Australia, actually. And I just let myself do whatever I wanted for those two weeks. We, I mean, we just, we made the most of it. And I remember coming back to England, spending Christmas in England and still continuing to enjoy being at home, which I always have, like the things that I don't get to have over here. And I remember feeling pretty upset about it, like, oh, even that didn't do it for me because that was a solid month. And so that was kind of a point where I thought, well, this is not, it's just, it's just not going to happen until I stop running. So I would say it was year round, but there were definitely periods, small, short, chunks where I did allow myself to do whatever I wanted, but it just wasn't enough time or wasn't enough, I suppose.
0: Mm, yep. That makes sense. And certainly talking to Bronwyn in the last episode, she talked about the fact that the recovery, and, and we'll get into this in just a sec, was mm. it kind of depends, or the, the time course depends on how long you're in that low energy availability in the first place. Mm. So the longer you've been in it, probably the longer the recovery Oh, kind interesting. takes as well. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I did not know that. So I guess in terms of where you started on your road to recovery from REDS or red s it sounds like the first thing for you was to actually stop running which is yeah you know, for a lot of people it's probably to to try and increase their food intake or maybe drop their training at, a little bit or stop any extras and things like that but for you it was like complete cessation by the sound of it
2: Yeah I did in the year prior I had tried like playing with the what my food makeup was I in a roundabout way, ended up low (laughs) low carb. So not sure how much that helped things. But I tried, you know, eating more, a lot more protein, a lot more fat, because that was something that, again, one of the people I talked to had said, okay, well, why don't you try this? Maybe you're not getting enough fats in your diet, you're not getting enough protein. So I had tried changing that. But that when that didn't work, it was Yeah, the only conclusion was to stop. And I had reached a point where mentally and emotionally, I was ready to do that. But I, I think that's quite rare to come across someone who is ready to just stop and not Mm. actually be bothered by it. People during that time would say, oh, I bet that was so hard. And I'm like, actually, it really wasn't. I actually Mm. really enjoyed just not doing anything for a few months and having time and repairing the relationships that, you know, I had just neglected from the focus and intensity that I'd given to my, my training. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I loved and I thrived on having, you know, being able to go meet a friend for breakfast at 8 a.m. rather than being like, sorry, I've got to get my running. Can we push it to 10? So, yeah, for me, it wasn't actually that bad, but I think I just was at the point where I could.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, that's the, the training side of things. So, that mm-hmm. went from obviously, you know, full on training to, I mean, I don't know if you still did a bit of sort of recreational running in there or just for fitness or went to the gym or something no, or it just completely stopped.
2: Complete yeah. stop. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then on the food side of things, did that change straight away as well? Or did that take a period of sort of adjustment? And I mean, I guess this is for, you know, really for any athlete at re- the point of retirement, this is a, you know, a big transition period, not only for training, but then food and then the relationship between those two things.
2: Yeah, again for me, I think I was able to channel my competitiveness into all right, you tell me I gotta gain weight, let's let's see how quickly we can do this. So I think I was able to do it pretty quickly. And I remember going to restaurants and looking at the menu and being like, I can pick whatever I want on here. <laughs> Not like which would be the best for my running. So no, I really I allowed myself to go for it. Again, that book, No Period Now What was so helpful because it would have All these testimonials and and little snippets from women who had pretty much said the same thing. So that was very helpful. But no, I I think, again, that's another thing most people struggle with. But for me, it just broke that cycle and that pattern. It did take me, I would say, a few years to really remove that inner critic of like, you're going to choose that. That's what you're going to do. But yeah. I, I say because it was, I think a lot of it was, I made the choice. So it wasn't like an injury forced me out or I finally, mm. I was like, I am choosing this. So it made it easier because it was my decision.
0: Yep. Yep. Now that makes sense. And you mentioned before, obviously that the various kind of symptoms you had, obviously the lack of a menstrual cycle was the biggest, most mm. ongoing and most obvious one. But then there mm-hmm. was the kind of the cold hands and feet, the kind of Reynards type symptoms, and then obviously the insomnia and that sort of thing. How long did it take for those things to kind of start to resolve?
2: Um, the cold, that was that's kind of hard to, because, it, I mean, I guess the air conditioning in the summer, but because it was, I, I stopped in March. So by the time my body really got going, it was now summer. Hmm. So I don't really remember when that kind of got better. I just remember being a few years later and thinking like, oh, I don't need two pairs of gloves anymore. I only need one. Or I could wear Hmm. just, I think I'd like forget an extra pair of gloves and be like, oh no, my hands are going to be so numb. And then they were fine. But then the sleeping, the interesting part was, it was actually when my daughter was born because for the first time in my life, I was like, this is all I'm focused on. I am keeping this little person alive, and so I everything else like melted away, and so it was in that moment. And I've kept it. It's not like I mean I'd mentioned to you before we started recording that I've been sleeping well the last few days. But this is a you know I'm about to take a big long trip, but generally yeah, it was when she was born. I think it was finally a time where I realized that I didn't need to be I it didn't matter if I didn't respond to an email or it didn't matter if I didn't get something done like the world wasn't going to fall apart so yeah it's quite funny when most people say that's when their struggle with sleep starts but for me I felt like I slept like a rock as soon as she was born so obviously still listening for her noises but For me, that felt like a vacation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yeah, that was like I'd say over time I was working through my like perfectionistic tendencies and my kind of need to be doing all the time. And I'd still say that's an ongoing journey to like be still and be okay with resting. So,
0: Mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And how about the menstrual cycle side of things? How long did that take to sort of kick into gear?
2: Well, I actually didn't have a period. I just was pregnant at 10 weeks. So, well, there
0: you go. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, <laughs> I, I yeah, kind of and that's again, I know that can be I want to just say for anyone listening, that can be quite difficult and a lot of people said that was really hard for them to hear because it's like, "Oh, well, of course for you it just like clicks into place you stop running and immediately you're pregnant." And so I want to recognize that like that is quite a bit of a like fairy tale ending to this that is you know maybe doesn't take into account how difficult it is for everyone else but I really I really bought into like I said I didn't run I didn't I I ate whatever I was able to do that I rested I really really worked on myself internally and so um I was very fortunate that it came together that fast and my body also cooperated my grandma was also like she had 10 kids I know that like fertility is pretty strong in my family Mm. so I also recognized I was fortunate on that side but yeah I didn't actually end up getting a period I just I was pregnant at 10 weeks so pretty Mm. quickly yeah wow
0: (laughs) okay and then after your daughter was born did you sort of commence to a kind of a normal cycle after that
2: yeah I think oh well I think so I I would say some of the restrictive tendencies were still there and it did take I think 13 14 months to get it back after her and my second, it only took six months. So I don't know if the difference there is just different child, different person, or if i was still maybe being a bit restrictive with the first. And then by my second daughter, I was kind of fully processed through that time. And, but yeah, once I got to that, it was pretty much once I stopped breastfeeding my first daughter that it came right back. And, and yeah, since then it's been it's been good. And actually, I've really loved having that indicator because sometimes it'll get to, I think once or twice, it's got to maybe 33, 34 days. And that's been a sign of like, all right, Tina, you, you're, you're, you're extending this now, like that's, you know, you need to take better care of yourself. And So I'm very grateful now for that, that my body is so sensitive because it gives me that reminder to really take care of myself every month.
0: mm no, that makes sense. And you mentioned earlier that you were you were pretty blessed in terms of injuries throughout your career, despite mm-hmm. being in that kind of low energy availability state. Had you ever had a DEXA scan? Like, did you know whether your bone density was kind of low on the low side or normal throughout that period?
2: Mm-hmm. I did have one, yes. And I probably should actually get another one sometime soon to check in on everything. I had one and I remember one of them was slightly low, but it wasn't much. Um, mm. I want to say it was my sacral, but I can't be sure about that. But it was only very slightly on the, I don't know what the term would be. It was, it was minus numbers, right?
0: Yeah. So it, if it's it was, less than minus one, it'd be osteopenia.
2: Yes. so I think it was like slightly less than one of them and the others were fine. Mm. So, But yep. it wasn't enough to, again, cause alarm or make people kind of say okay you need to do something right now mm. this was I think at that early point when I you know first lost it
0: Yeah, yep no that makes sense and so I'm aware that you've you've sort of probably spoken to a lot of other athletes mm. about reds and your recovery from it Do you feel, do you see a pattern in the story of others in terms of the recovery side of things? Obviously your story, as you said, is a a bit unusual, but is there, I guess, a more typical pattern or presentation that you've, that you've heard of from the people that you have spoken to about it?
2: Yeah. I think, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of it is they come to me like guns blazing, like this big, long email of like all the tiny little details of everything, you know, everything is very measured and calculated. And when they reach a point where they say to me, like, essentially, like, I I, I don't know whether I'll swear or not, but like, F it, like, I'm Mm. I'm done, I'll do whatever it takes. That is the point when they usually come to me a few weeks later and be like, guess what, like, I've got it back or Mm. something. So that seems to be definitely the thing I've noticed that's most in common is this control and then like a letting go, which is exactly what I did in that moment I stopped. Like a a let it happen. But beyond that, I would say it's in terms of symptoms, yeah. The 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 menstrual cycle is is always there. They usually mention something to do with like some of the other symptoms they didn't know about, same as me. They wrote them away, like, oh, I have reynalds or oh, I get digestive issues just because I've got I'm celiac or I have an intolerance to I'm lactose intolerant or something. So it's kind of more a registering of registering of like, oh, actually these are connected. But beyond that, it's just, yeah, I, honestly, most of it seems to be a personality type that comes to me. You've always very lengthy emails, always very, very high achieving, you know, committed, determined, driven, self-motivated. So those are more the things I notice in common with people who are on that recovery journey. And it's when they are able to like, let go of some of that, that they start to see some progress.
0: Mm. Yep. And, and you may not always hear you know all the details of what people have done but do you find the changes that they make are more on the training side or the food side or a bit of both
2: Hmm, I would say they usually start by trying to increase their food mm. but find it too difficult to just do that and so they then cut back on the training it kind of is almost like a baby steps, the cut back on the training to where they finally are able to, you know, take some rest time off while also increasing. So I wouldn't say this, yeah, general, but I'd say it usually starts with, you know, I just don't want to let go of the sport. I just really need this. Mm -hmm. And then them recognizing that they maybe have their identity tangled up in their sport and that's what needs to back off.
0: Mm. That's exactly what Bobby said, actually, when we discussed that with her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when you said the difficulty with the food side of things, as in they're struggling to fit enough calories into their day from a practical, like it's just too filling, or more Mm -hmm. so the psychological, I can't bring myself to eat that much, or a bit of both, maybe.
2: I think it's probably both, but they usually Mm. explain it to me that it's like, I can't physically eat that much. Like, I'm not hungry, but... Mm. I don't know, but like it kind of seems like we're, we've become so good at telling ourselves we're not hungry when you're doing that. Mm. You you kind of, you know, like I said, I would say to my stomach, like, shut up, you cannot be hungry again. You're just eight. So you get very good at like explaining it away or, you mm. know, oh, maybe I'm just thirsty. So I think it usually starts as they physically, like a volume, but then they recognize. And I remember once I stopped running, I remember feeling like the floodgates opened and I was just ravenous all mm. the time and then thinking how am I ever going to stop like am I, my body it felt like the more I ate the more I wanted and so I think that scares people to start with that if they open the floodgates they won't be able to stop eating but it felt to me at some point like at one point my body was like okay I'm good and then it like calmed itself down the, cra- the like hunger pangs Mm, so,
0: mm. Yeah. And I wonder too, sometimes, you know, Steph and I talk about this a fair bit, is like the fiber intake that some people have, because particularly if they're mm-hmm. eating in a particular way, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of orthorexic, for lack of a better term, yeah. pattern of eating, eating mm-hmm. clean, you know, eating lots mm-hmm. of fruit and vegetables and whole grain, this and brown rice, that and everything. Yep then it just becomes like physically difficult to eat that much food as well. Yeah, and so sure. some of the letting go is about eating the quote-unquote unhealthy or more refined versions of some mm-hmm. of those foods to get more calories in for the same volume of food. Yeah,
2: that, yeah, that's absolutely a great point, yeah.
1: Mm. Any of our listeners who may be concerned about low energy availability or REDS, are there any useful resources for athletes out there that you can recommend?
2: Well, I, I, I hope maybe I can... I, it's okay for me to say that I ha- I did create this big resource on YouTube where mm. I basically took all the questions that I had... You you mentioned about what the people had in common. I took all the common questions. So like, I eat a lot. Surely it can't be Red S. Or my weight is normal, so it can't be Red S. Uh, and I asked these experts, had them answer, and put these on YouTube in little snippets. So I would hopefully send people there because it's going to answer all those questions and things that you would typically send someone like me or like you Alan and Steph um, to like find your answers again that no period now what for me was a huge resource not so much I'm not really like a dive into the science person but she did have that in there but it was more just reading other people's like reading things and thinking that's exactly what I would say or feel so just seeing that and there are plenty of groups you know Facebook groups and things out there now for that as well but beyond that you know I know there's 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 obviously podcasts out there including yours that have resources ways to learn and listen and so I think there's I mean there's so much out there now I mean compared to what there was that Mm. even just you know any, you can go down any anywhere and, and find things but yeah I hope that Red earth resource I've created on on my YouTube channel is is gonna be somewhere that people can go to like educate themselves in like whatever they're ready for so maybe you watch two videos today that's all I can handle this is like overloading my brain because now I'm finally recognizing that this is me so tomorrow I'll go back and watch a few more and learn a bit more so hopefully digestible in a way that maybe reading a book is like you know, you slap the book shut and throw it across the room like, oh, this is not me. <laughs> so maybe a, a way of someone talking who's been through it. So,
0: Yeah. One of the things that was interesting that that Bobby talked about, and, and I guess it's a little bit different for you probably because you're a bit older. You're sort of in your mid-20s when you're going mm-hmm. through this, whereas Bobby was, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, a lot of it, and then sort yep. of the end of high school. She talked about the fact that at that time when she was in that kind of mindset that, you know, you could have health health professionals tell her all of this and it's like, what do you know? You're not a runner. You mm-hmm. you have no experience in this. Mm-hmm. Your opinion is irrelevant to me kind of thing. It would have to come from someone with sort of lived experience as a runner mm-hmm. that that is a bit more relatable. Did you feel that that would have been the same for you in, in that time period? And do you think that's important just more broadly in terms of getting that education message across?
2: Yeah, I do think, yeah, a lot of the time, when doctors would say to me, like, you just have to stop running, I'd be like, well, what do you know? Like, you don't understand what I'm doing. Like, I can't just stop running when I'm going to university for it. Like, they're paying for me to be here. So a lot of it was, yeah, like, I remember seeing, coming across when I saw an endocrinologist in probably 2015, and he was a runner. And he was a man. And so I dealt like I couldn't relate to him in that way. But I remember thinking like he gets it and I remember it feeling like such a good feeling coming across a runner who like knew how much that meant and then you know Ali Ostrander did say to me last year that she had known of me but she kind of like pushed me out of her head because she knew I was saying the things that could like get through to her but didn't want to wasn't ready to to take it in Mm -hmm. so I do think it would help but I also think yeah you've got to be like people often say to me, would you go back and change anything? If What would you tell yourself? I wouldn't tell myself anything because I, wouldn't, I wasn't ready to listen. Mm. So it, it wouldn't have mattered. And so I think I, what I will say is I do think there's some people listening to this right now or who come across Bobby or Bronwyn or whatever, and they hear it and it hits right. That is your message. This, if what I'm saying is resonating with you, I am your message. But... There's going to be a lot of other people out there who are hearing me talk, and they're like, "Yeah, but she, no, that's not me." And they're just mm. not ready. So I think mm. you have to be internally at a point where you are prepared to do what you need to do. And it, that is only on you,
0: yeah, yeah, totally. and and Steph, chip in here as well. but I think yeah, you know, often as as health professionals, we'll see that people come to us because they're ready. Mm-hmm. And that could be for lots of different reasons. like we can sometimes have athletes that come to us because, they're in a hole of fatigue. Like that's the first kind of sign that, that yeah. sets it off. And, and some of those are probably more so the unintentional ones, where you know they've they've just got you know a lot of cyclists, triathletes in particular, like massive training load, and they mm. just don't realise that they're eating enough. And all of a sudden you're like, oh okay, oh, I just need to eat more. And then a month later they're flying and they're really happy. Whereas yeah, I think this is probably a bit of a different situation. Sorry, Steph, you're going to say something.
1: Uh, I was going to say probably a bit of both. I, I get the when the probably the parents are taking the mm. um, young ones there, and you can see the young ones mm-hmm. aren't ready. I see it going like in, and they'll nod and that but they're not. And I see that in you know even runners that I run with that have though so I have concerns for them, but I know that they're they're not ready. And it doesn't matter what you you know what some people say. They need mm. to kind of get there yeah when yeah when they're ready and can, yeah
2: can I ask you then with that age group do you think there is anything that can be done to nudge them along or like think, is that
1: yeah yeah I think I mean it's peers like I do think mm. and we've heard it quite a bit on the podcast where like Bobby said it as well you know yet yeah, having people that they look up to the role models that Mm. that will help again obviously they need to kind of be ready and I think it's just that it's going to be a whole lot of different environmental factors that we need to put in there and then hopefully there's one of them that will get them and I think Mm. also probably medical practitioners like I know when I was younger running and I just got you know given the pill to to get my period back and Mm. that was okay at that time and I think that happened Mm. to Bobby too I can't remember yeah I still
2: think it happens now yeah
1: Mm. unfortunately Mm. Um, no so those things need to stop as well
0: Mm. probably coaches is the other big one in terms Mm. of someone who's quite influential on someone far more Mm. so than a health professional that you've met once before Mm. you know Bobby did talk about the fact that you know when she started university changed coaches obviously to the coach at the uni and they instantly halved her training volume overnight which she was initially skeptical about but then all of a sudden she was doing really well and so you know she was kind of on board with that so yeah I think coaches is the other big one in terms of like peers and then coaches are probably the Mm -hmm. two most influential certainly more than than us health professionals.
2: Yeah yeah that 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 makes sense and I guess that's again what I was saying earlier about you know this generation coming through they're much more savvy they're very you know good at assessing that's that's really brings home that important point of like finding a coach a university whatever who has that healthy culture has built that safe healthy culture because that's that's everything if you're someone who has struggled with that or is struggling yeah
1: that's what yeah that's right that's what bobby said wasn't it when she went to that coach and he halved her Mm -hmm. low and she actually was starting to like feel better and actually Mm -hmm. raised really well but it was just
0: and having a social life and that yeah, kind and of it, thing, which she hadn't had for the last yeah, few years. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. It's too late at that stage, unfortunately. But, yeah, yeah. So anything else important that that we've missed or you'd like to, you know, tell our listeners?
2: I guess I would just speak to the person who is hearing this, feeling that, like, gut discomfort of, like, wanting to, again, shut this off and be like, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't want to listen to this or feeling that like pit not in your stomach of saying like okay yeah this is me and and I I feel like I'm ready and it would just be to say that like it is going to feel like such a big decision it's going to feel like this is going to affect your whole life and this is going to be forever and there's going to be periods over the coming months and years where you're going to be like what am I doing and who am I and you're going to question everything but Coming out the other side of this, when you work through this, the person you're going to be is not only going to be so much happier and more loving, and you're going to become closer to the person that you want to be, but you'll also learn so many beautiful things about yourself and others, because as one of you mentioned earlier, there's so much like mood and mental stuff going on that we can't even be our best selves to those who love us and they love us because they love us. But like when they see you begin to shine and they get you back, that relationship will build so much love in you that is worth the discomfort of working through this process of healing. And you will just feel so much more whole knowing that you have these deep rooted relationships and people that love you no matter what you look like. So I would just say like, take that leap. And if you can link to it, there's an article I wrote for self magazine that's definitely by far and away been the most impactful thing. And I basically wrote it during that period of like, jump off the cliff with me, like let's do it together. And so that I think people might find that help helpful. And yeah, so I just remind people that like you're still who you are, no matter what you look like. And even though it's scary, it's it's gonna be worth it.
0: Well said. All right, we'll finish up with our bonus round now, Tina, where people find out a little bit more about you besides running and and obviously (laughs) the bits and pieces that have have happened during that time. So the first question, and I'm not sure what sort of exercise you're up to these days in terms of running or other sports or cycling or whatever, but when you do finish, what's your favourite post-exercise food or drink and why?
2: You know, it's funny, I sorry I'm gonna make this a long answer instead of a short one I used to be like so particular about like a burger and chips like that was my thing maybe a like freak shake one of those like over the top milkshakes with a donut on or something now I don't really feel like I have something particular it's kind of what I feel like in that moment I will say actually Alan with our uh, mutual friend Elizabeth I recently did a I was visiting her and I did a long run and I finished and a fish taco sounded really good. And I'm actually a vegetarian usually, but a fried fish taco just sounded so good. So I actually went, it was a burrito, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) I went and got a a fried fish burrito and that was just, so that's definitely coming to mind right now. It's like cheating on my vegetarianism to have a fried fish taco.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Is there a sport that you've always wanted to try, but you haven't had the chance?
2: Oh, there are so many things I haven't tried that I wanted the chance. Haven't I did I have been doing rock climbing a little bit late re- recently. That's something that I, I really love to do. I also used to do horse riding and I miss that so much. So I'd love to get the chance to do that again sometime soon. I'm trying to think what would be like one that I haven't tried. There's so many. Yeah, I I really would say there's so many. I, I'm definitely in an exploration stage of my life. So I'm open to all things. Although pickleball because people talk about it so oh, much. Okay. So, what is yep. this pickleball deal? So, maybe that. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep. Fair enough. Yep. <laughs> Favorite destination you've been to either because of running or just generally traveling?
2: In your country, I think Port Douglas. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, the Daintree. Yeah. One of those yeah. around that area. That was yeah, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Definitely yeah, that, that area. Cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a good one. Although, went not there. near
2: either of you, right?
0: No, 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 no. Okay. Steph was waiting for you to say Adelaide. Yeah,
2: sorry, I haven't <laughs> been <to> Adelaide. <laughs> I wouldn't
1: say that's necessarily people's favorite destination. Uh. Dandinong Ranges, rainforest, it's stunning in Victoria. Yeah, so, yeah. But, okay. but a
0: bit colder, different type of rainforest. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. no, far north mm-hmm. Queensland's definitely a nice place mm-hmm. to go. Mm-hmm. What sporting event that you're most looking forward to in 2023? Is this for me? Well, it could be to watch or to participate. Wow. Either,
2: I am I am running a fifty mile probably about when this is coming out. So, I'm looking forward to that. Also terrified because I haven't run anywhere close to that. So, but I'm looking forward to doing something to really see what I'm capable of. Since I, well, since the first race I did after my daughter, where I was still clinging on to my competitiveness. Um, I've like let go and I've really been doing, I run mostly as a guide for <laughs> blind runners. So I'm looking forward to actually doing something where I push myself, not just run someone else to their best. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd say that. that, rush. that trail race. Trail yeah. race mm. in Bryce nice. Canyon, which is a, a well, quite is high t- elevation. So I'm <laughs> making it even more difficult on myself. But yeah, I'm, I'm still looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, and final question: Do you have a favorite piece of advice or motto?
2: Hmm. Follow your heart. I am very much a person that we believes that we, we always get that voice that comes through in anything and everything immediately. That gut intuition, and we've got so bad at overthinking and not listening to it. But yeah, I always find when I trust my heart, trust follow my heart. That always is the answer.
1: Well, thank you very much, Tina. Thank you for getting up a little bit earlier for us today. And we wish you good luck for your 50-mile run. That'll be, that'll be fun. Is that your, 50, your first
2: 50-mile Yeah, it's so out of my comfort zone that I am curious, like, how am I going to handle when I'm in the depth of, you know, maybe, I don't know, 32 miles in and I've got 18 miles to go and, you know, there's that voice that's saying, can you even finish this but like, like working through or it could be at 10 mile you know maybe I don't feel good at 10 miles so I'm I'm scared but I'm also excited to to really just in this new mindset of my life that I've had since I had kids to see how I handle it so yeah it's gonna be fun and we'll see nutritionally whether I can handle it I'm interested how my body is gonna handle you know eight hours of eating so we'll yeah.
1: see <laughs> yeah awesome <laughs> well, all the best, and thank yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on the show.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. I I love talking to you both.
1: Great, thank you very much, Tina, for getting up early for us all to to share your story. And as oil is, I will let our do a bit of summary from I guess Bromwin's episode um, in episode A, and now Tina's.
0: Yep. Sure. So our question, as we said, was what is the nutrition roadmap for recovery from REDS? And so first of all, REDS is obviously a combination of things that can go wrong. It's sort of the the symptoms or the outcomes, I suppose, whereas low energy availability, which is the lack of calories eaten relative to the training load that someone's doing, is the primary cause of the REDS and the different outcomes from that. So Tina mentioned In this interview, you know, a couple of things that happened with her in terms of reds, obviously, the amenorrhea was the big one that was sort of really bothered her throughout her career. And the one that she sort of, you know, prompted her to to really investigate this in more detail. And in fact, she quit running because of it, or, or one of the factors why she quit running. But she also mentioned a couple of other things I thought were worth noting again here. One was the sensation of really cold or purple hands, and that is actually a very common thing we see a lot of people with reds describe, particularly females, I think more so than males, but I do see this fairly commonly and that probably reflects the fact that with reds you get a a lowering of metabolic rate, basal metabolic rate as Bron talked about in the previous episode. So obviously when we produce energy in our bodies, that produces heat as a byproduct, and that's the the body heat that keeps us warm. And so when we have a lack of body heat, it's like when you go to the snow, you end up with cold, purpley hands because all the blood distributes back to your core to try and keep your your body temperature up at the core. And so the same happens here. If you've got a lowered metabolic rate, you're going to redistribute your blood back to your internal organs and away from your hands and feet, and so you're going to get those sort of symptoms as well. So it is actually very common. I know you, Steph, have seen this in athletes that you've worked with as well. I've, I've seen that and other colleagues we've worked with have commented on just how much people with reds describe feeling cold all the time, whether it's their hands or feet or just generally feeling cold is, is quite, uh, quite common. Uh, Tina also described insomnia. Now, whether that's a direct effect of REDS or it more reflects sort of mental health more broadly rather than REDS itself, it's it's hard to sort of unpack that cause and effect. It's certainly not something that I see universally with everyone with REDS, but it's not uncommon, particularly in people of that sort of personality type, I suppose, that sort of perfectionistic personality type, which is one group that is susceptible to REDS, but it's certainly not the only, only group of people. So I guess the treatment of reds, as we outlined with Bron the other week, is really to address the underlying issue, which is the low energy availability. And so to do that is either going to be eating more calories to match the training load or reduce the training load to bring that energy availability back to a, a healthy level. Now, in Tina's case, she actually did the opposite of what Bron described. You know, Bron sort of mentioned the fact that most people aren't very keen on giving up training. And so, usually, it's going to be eating more as the solution. But in Tina's case, I think she was mentally done with, with the sport and, you know, where she was at at that time. So, she actually s- chose to stop exercising completely. And that's an unusual situation, but obviously, it's going to improve energy availability almost instantly. And she also went through a period there of not just stopping exercise, but she talked about the fact that she went out almost on a mission to gain weight by eating more as well. So it was actually a bit of both. But because of the fact that she did that so abruptly and so purposefully, you know, she was pregnant within 10 weeks. So literally her first menstrual cycle, she didn't even get to the bleed stage. She was pregnant on the the first cycle, uh, which is obviously, again, very unusual. Now, obviously, there's uh, what Tina described is that the mental health aspect here, ultimately, that's sort of what led to her, you know, finishing up running. But she really described, I think this is really important, is that aspect of control that you see, again, with this sort of personality type control of body shape, control of diet, control of training, there's lots of elements of control there. And she talked about the fact that it was finally letting go of all of that stuff. Particularly around body weight and eating, that sort of allowed her to turn things around so quickly. And she talked about the fact that often that's the thing that people struggle with the most is this concept of of letting go. And as Bron mentioned, you know sometimes the road to recovery from reds is a long and slow one because people struggle to let go. And so they might you know improve their energy availability a little bit, but maybe not to a a large extent. Whereas Tina went the whole hog straight away on day one. And so, for some people, it can take them months or even years to get their menstrual cycle back and to feel like things are finally back on track. But in fact, in Tina's case, that happened almost you know within a few weeks, and you know, she got a cycle back. or she didn't get a cycle; she was pregnant at, at week ten. So for others, you know, rather than stopping exercise completely, obviously that that was just her stage in her career where that was the choice that she made. But for other people, that might be you know deliberately trying to increase calorie intake and or a slight reduction in training volume or reduction in extras and things like that as well. So recovery from reds is certainly possible. But as Tina said, it's often going to take an element of letting go and you having to want to do it. And, and so if you're in that situation where you've got that real conflict in your mind of, you know, oh, I really want to train this hard or I really want this sort of physique, but at the same time, realizing that there's some issues here from a health point of view that are concerning you as well, and you're really conflicted. I think that's where it's really important to get professional advice to help you sort of work through that and help you come to a decision about how you're going to manage this. And I think what came out of both Tina's discussion and the one we had a couple of episodes ago with Bobby Clay around bone fracture specifically was this concept of not having your identity too tangled up in your sport. And, you know, Tina talked about the fact that a lot of people approach her and say, oh, you know, I just don't want to let go of my sport or I really need this because they're so attached to this sport as their sense of identity or to their body shape and physique as their sense of identity. But as Bobby said, you know, your sport is what you do. It's not who you are. And I think Tina sort of really reinforced that message. And that's that's probably a, a really important one to get across here is, you know, recovery from reds is going to take that shift in mindset, I think, as much as anything so finally just to finish up on tina mentioned that sense of letting go and that conflict so if you're someone who is in that situation and are feeling conflicted a couple of resources that might be particularly helpful to you the first one is that article that tina mentioned that she wrote back in 2017 at the time that she actually quit running and that's in self magazine and the other one is the bunch of youtube videos i think there's over 30 of them in total they're all short you know two to three minute type videos on Tina's YouTube channel as well and we'll link to both of those in the show notes both are fantastic resources and great for people who are feeling in that situation and feeling trapped with these issues around reds but this conflict of what that's going to mean for them and their sport
1: well said yeah well said um and Al, we are quite excited about our next episode, which is 58A, because I think we were saying it's probably taken us, well, close to two years. Is that right?
0: I think so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What yeah. one have we got coming up?
0: Yeah, yeah. So we've been stalking our guest on this one for a couple of years, as we have with a few episodes recently, Steph. But because of maternity leave and other things, it hasn't been possible until now but we're very grateful that we can do it now. And this is a topic I think that both you and I were super keen to do because we see all the time athletes that are taking bucket loads and bucket loads and bucket loads of magnesium supplements, but they don't know why they're taking them. (laughs) You ask them and you get some vague answer about recovery, around cramping, around oh, just because everyone does, something along these lines. So our topic for our next episode, which will be episode 58A, is what's the deal with magnesium? And athletes. And our special guest is Dr. Sophie Killer, who worked for several years with British Athletics, so their Olympic and Paralympic track and field teams over in the UK. Uh, and she's just come back from maternity leave, or she's on maternity leave again, actually, but uh, has sort of transitioned into other roles since then, but did a lot of work looking at the magnesium status of the British track and field team and trying to work out what's going on there, whether there was a need for supplementation, and if so, why, and what the benefits may or may not be from that. So really enjoyed this discussion with Sophie, covered a lot of ground. I think magnesium is one of these areas that is a hot topic, but there's very little research. And so there's a lot of of myths and misconceptions in this area, probably far more so than almost any other area I can think of within sports nutrition. So great to clarify that with Sophie and hopefully give people a bit more knowledge about this area, which. We all talk about, but know very little about.
1: Yeah, Excellent. And a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Thanks to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really do appreciate it. And remember also that there's now more than 57 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November two thousand and twenty. And if you want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app you're listening to this on. If your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or their racing and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know. And otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and see you in a couple of weeks.
0: Will do. See you then.